Our scripture reading today is Acts 2, 1 through 4. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Note to self, when you sing at the top of your lungs, get the words right. And for those of you who liked a uh, little interplay between Tim and myself, you can catch our full routine at the Long Beach Improv on Tuesday nights. We'll be there this week. Sorry about that. But it's so good to be with all of just everybody here today. We have a wonderful group of folks visiting that are here with us. There may be others I haven't got to meet yet, but we're so glad to be together and have an opportunity to worship together this morning. And I just want to reiterate what Tim said about our small groups. Our life groups are starting up next week. We are going to do sign-up sheets just to kind of see how things uh, filter through, make sure we have kind of an even spread between the groups. If you'd like to be part of a different group, this is the time to do it. It's a good time to change. You can, of course, do that any time. But if you'd like to be with a different group of folks, just meet some new brothers and sisters a little bit better, please feel free to, to switch over to another group. Um, we have, uh, first, I do want to thank... On behalf of all of us, the hosts and the facilitators who have been doing such an amazing job over the last several years uh, and who are continuing to do that, we thank you so much. There are five groups this time. Uh, we would, would encourage those of you who were uh, meeting with the group at Yvonne Williams' home to shift over to the home of the Coles, uh, where that's kind of a, your new meeting place. We would like you to encourage you to do that. And... Uh, let me just put it this way, because I could go on and on about life groups. I love them. It's a time for fellowship. It's a time when we get together and apply the Word of God very specifically and personally. It's also a great time for outreach and a time to bring friends. And I would just say, if you're not in a life group between 5 and 6 next Sunday evening, I'm just telling you, you're missing the very best thing you could be doing. There's nothing better you're going to be doing than that. It's a wonderful time of fellowship and spiritual growth. really want to encourage everyone to, to be a part of that. I'm anticipating that. This has been a week of anticipation for me. Just thinking about the future, thinking about things on the horizon. Anticipating tonight, tonight when we come back together in our devotional, we're going to assemble together for the purpose of coming together as a church and hearing, listening to Paul's letter to the Philippians from start to finish, hearing that letter read at once as the early church would have done, having a wonderful time of worship, a great meal, anticipating the, the group starting next week. And you know what the blessings we've had over the last three or four weeks of additions to the family here. I'm just anticipating what God is doing right now in this church and thinking if we continue to speak out, if we continue to share the good news, God will continue to bring growth to the body here. And anticipating also what God may have in store for us over the next several months as things begin to change around here. And kind of an unknown time for us and yet an exciting time of anticipation. Maybe there are times when you're anticipating something that's a few months down the road. Or maybe a year down the road. Have, but have you ever anticipated something that's two years off or three years off? Have you ever had a, a longing and an earnest expectation for something that was ten years away? Or how about... 50 or 100 years in the future, well, no individual 
person could have an expectation to last that long because of our lifespan. But in the Scripture, there is a sense of anticipation that spans not hundreds of years, but thousands of years. It begins in the very early pages of the Scripture, back in the Garden of Eden, where we find ourselves in our parents, Adam and Eve, and what happens there, but we are deceived, and we eat, and we rebel, and we sin, and we fall, and we die. And it would appear that everything that God has planned for us, by His grace, has come to a crashing halt. And words of judgment are meted out, but in the middle of those words of judgment, as God speaks to the serpent, there is this line that we latch on to, because Jesus says that the offspring of woman will one day bruise the head of that serpent, and we know it's Satan who is behind that serpent. And we hear this word of hope. And then early on in the text, and certainly as Israel first read that, they would have thought, who is this? What does this mean? What's going to happen? But somebody's going to come. Someone is going to come to defeat the power of evil. And there is a sense of anticipation that begins there and then in Genesis chapter 3 that does nothing but grow and swell throughout the pages of Scripture. And this is a word of anticipation not just for mankind in general, but to Israel specifically, the people through whom God is going to work to save the world. And though we know in their history they rise and fall and fail many times, they never stop longing for the one who's going to come. And as the Old Testament unfolds, we just see it. We just see the terms pop off the page. He is the seed of Abraham, according to Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham is told, by his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. It's prophesied in Genesis 49. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 says, God will raise up a prophet like me who speaks with God face to face who will speak to the people. And he's speaking about the coming one. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes an amazing promise to David that God will raise up one of David's offspring to rule as a king forever. The son of David who will rule as the king of Israel and will rule forever. And then years later, Isaiah, writing his prophecy, speaks of the coming of the servant. The servant who will bear the sins of the world. The servant who will give his life to bring about the redemption of all of those who look to him. And Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, gives us a view in Daniel uh, of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. This Son of Man who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And as the nations and empires fall before Him, His dominion and His kingdom will never end. And the anticipation through all these centuries grows. And the titles are so many. He'll be the Christ, the Lord, the Anointed One, the Prince of Peace, the Branch, the Wonderful Counselor, the Root of David, the Messiah. And as Israel anticipates this coming one, it's not just the person himself, but it's everything that's associated with him that he is going to bring about when he does arrive. For example, there is the anticipation of a new covenant. This new one who will change things will bring a new covenant. Jeremiah foretells this in Jeremiah 31 when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, 
declares, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. A new covenant, a covenant written on the heart, a law within, so that everyone will know the Lord. Everyone will have a relationship with God. And how can this law find its way into their hearts? The prophets tell us because God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come to live within the people of God, to empower God's people to obey the will of God and to transform them. And so Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36, I will give, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says, I'm sending my spirit within you. In this new covenant, my spirit will be within you and that will give you the power to obey the things that I've called upon you to obey. And Joel puts it this way in Joel chapter 2 as he looks to the future. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. A day in the future when God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. It will be evidenced by signs and wonders. People will see what is going on. And Joel announces, God through the prophet, that then anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the anticipation grows. For who would not want to see such a day? Who would not want to see the coming of the Anointed One of God, the Servant, the Son of David. Who would not long to see the day that the New Covenant begins and God sends forth His Spirit to live within us so that we can keep His law? A a new time, a new age. We're told by the prophet Isaiah that Jerusalem will play a very significant role when this happens. In Isaiah chapter 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes 
for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This mighty work of God, this new thing that God is going to do, will be proclaimed from Jerusalem. Nations will come and hear this, and people will be changed to the point that the implements of war will be set aside by those who believe this message, and they will not war against one another, but they will live in peace. And again, the anticipation swells for such a day and for such a time. And the prophets tell us that It will all start through the work of a prophet who will lead the way. In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet Isaiah says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Just as God comforts His people at the beginning of this chapter and talks about forgiving them and welcoming them back, He tells them how this is going to happen. That the coming of God to His people will be preceded by the coming of a prophet who will prepare the way for the glory of God to appear. And the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, in chapter 4, verse 5, also says, God through him, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then what happens? Nothing for 400 years. For 400 years, there are no prophets in Israel. But then, the Holy Spirit begins to stir and to go to work in the hearts of those who are preparing the way. And in fact, beginning with that very prophet that Isaiah and Malachi spoke of, calling him to come before the people of God and proclaim the coming of the kingdom. We know him as John. John the Baptist, we call him. He comes to baptize in Luke chapter 3. Listen to how he's described. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written... In the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. John is introduced as that prophet. Something is happening Something is stirring. Something is beginning to move forward. And the people see this and the people know it. They know these prophecies. They know this word from the Old Covenant. And here comes John. And the expectation at this point rises to a fever pitch because they just know this is it. Something is beginning to change. In fact, in this very text, just a few verses later, in verse 15, it says, The people were in expectation. The people realize something is happening. 
where something new is beginning. And they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. And so the crowds are stirred up. Are you the one? We've been waiting for this for centuries. Are you the one? Has the time come? Has the age of the Messiah arrived? And John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And John tells about the coming of the Christ. He will bring the Holy Spirit. The time is near. He will also bring judgment as he proclaims the truth. And in this very moment, at this very day, in this same chapter, down around verse 21 and 22, Jesus himself comes on the scene, goes out into the water with John, and identifying himself with Israel, preparing for the coming of the kingdom, Jesus is baptized by John. And as he comes up out of the water, we're told that the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form upon Jesus. And at that very moment, a voice from heaven, the voice of God himself spoke and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is not just a nice greeting or thing to say. God is quoting His own Scripture. You are my beloved Son. Psalm 2, 7. The psalm about the Son of David who is pronounced to be the Son of God as He ascends to the throne to rule. And God is announcing that Jesus is the Son of David, the King of Israel, with whom I am well pleased. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, the great song of the servant of God who comes to pay for the sins of Israel and for the world. And God is identifying Jesus at that moment with the servant and with the son of David and bringing together the hopes of Israel and these two figures and saying that Jesus is in fact himself both of these figures. He is the Messiah. It's just virtually announced by God Himself. And then, of course, we know this, don't we? We're not surprised. We are personally aren't surprised because we believe Jesus is the Messiah. And he, he lives among the people. We, we hear His teaching. And we see His divine power. And, and people are drawn to Him. And people understand something different is happening. And His own disciples at one point, of course, Confess him. First Peter in Mark, Matthew 16. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yes, it's true. They may not completely understand all the implications of that in the moment, but they know who he is. And the, the people, the expectations that the people have. Some come to Jesus wanting to make him king. There are all sorts of things going on. People know something is happening here. And something is happening now with this Jesus. And as those expectations grow... Jesus goes to the cross in fulfillment of the prophecies about him as the servant who will bear our iniquity. By his wounds we are healed. God has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He goes to the cross to pay the price for our sins. But then he's raised on the first day of the week 
Why? Because it's impossible for death to hold him. He is the King of Israel. He is the Son of David. He is the Son of God. And then in those few days that he has with his apostles before his ascension, Jesus begins to let them know what is about to happen. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you hear what happens in these words? Jesus signals the imminence, the nearness of all that the people have been anticipating since the Garden of Eden. It's happening. It's coming about. It's days away. His saving work has been completed. His death, His burial, His resurrection. He's just about to ascend into the heavens. And it will be there, reigning at the right hand of the Father, that He will inaugurate this long-awaited new covenant that's made possible by His blood and by His resurrection. And He will inaugurate this new covenant by doing the very thing the prophet said He would do. He will pour out the Holy Spirit. And everyone will know that the new age has come. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, will be saved. And so, a few days go by. And it's the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is one of the great festivals of Israel. It's the Feast of Weeks. It is 50 days following the Passover Sabbath. If we have our calendar right in the first century, Passover Sabbath, that Saturday after the Passover, Jesus would have been in the grave. He rose the next day, the day of first fruits. And then seven weeks later to the day, on the first day of the week, the day of Pentecost comes. And the city is filled with Jews from all over the world to keep that festival. And this is the moment... This is the moment chosen by God to bring all of these strains of prophecy, all of these hopes, all of these themes, all of these spiritual realities that the Old Testament point to, and to bring them all together into a single moment in time. A day in so many ways that is only surpassed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because this day is also associated with the action of Christ. And what he does on this day is so very important. And a new age is going to begin. It starts out like this. Chapter 2 of Acts, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, that's the apostles, 
They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they're filled with new wine. They're always mockers. But there are others who recognize what's happening and they ask the question. They ask the most important question, the right question. What does this mean? What does this mean? We heard this sound. We've never heard a sound like this in our entire lives. We come together, we find all these Galileans up there, and we're from all different parts, and I'm hearing, we're all hearing in our own language to think these men are speaking in our own language. How can they do that? They're from Galilee. They don't have the power to do such a thing. And they recognize something significant is going on. We're in the middle of something that we can't explain. There is no explanation for these events, and they want to know what does it mean. Peter might have said, well, I'm glad you asked. Because in verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. And he quotes, And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter answers, what does this mean? It means that the prophecy of Joel has come to pass. God is pouring out the Spirit upon us now. That's what's happening today. This is Ezekiel 36 at work. The Holy Spirit being available to live within us. And they're wondering, wait, 
Is this it? Is this the new age? Is this the new covenant that we've been waiting for? Is this something to do with, with the Messiah? Is this the work of the Christ? And Peter goes on to say in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's answer is yes, the Messiah does have something to do with this. Jesus has something to do with this. Do you remember Jesus? Of course you do. He did mighty works among you. God attested to you. You know this. You saw Him. He was here. You're very much aware of who He is. And you delivered Him up. It was God's plan. But He was crucified. He was killed. And He was raised. It was not possible for death to hold him. Well, what, what kind of evidence might there be that such a thing has taken place? And Peter answers as he goes on to quote the prophecy in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. God will not abandon the Holy One. The soul of the Holy One will not be left in Hades. The body of the Holy One will not be left in the grave to see corruption. Okay, we understand that prophecy, Peter, but what are you talking about? How does it apply to this situation? And in verse 29, Peter explains, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 2 Samuel 7, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified, 
Peter is quite clear Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus has been raised. It's Jesus' soul that was not abandoned to Hades. It is Jesus' body that did not see corruption in the grave because God raised it. And not only is the prophecy there, Peter says, but by the way, all of us who are speaking to you right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've seen him alive. We're witnesses of this. We've seen him. It wasn't David who ascended into heaven, but it was David's Lord who is the Christ. He is exalted. He reigns as king. He is the one who has poured out the Holy Spirit. Jesus has done this. And know this for certain, that God has made him Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Can you put yourself in that moment in that group and reflect on these words you just got to wonder what's going through people's minds what does this mean if what he's saying is true then the day has finally come I mean we're living it right now it's happening right now we're in the middle of what we've been waiting for for so long centuries of waiting and anticipation and longing has the moment finally arrived And if so, have we killed our Messiah? Have we destroyed the son of David? Have we taken the anointed one of God and nailed him to a tree? Have we really done that? Is that that what we're hearing? That everything we've been waiting for, for centuries, all of it is coming together now. And the very one who is our deliverer, we have crucified and put to death. Can you imagine the sense of joy and dread at the same time? The joy of what you know is, is, is the case. And yet, the dread of what they've done. And they can see. There's so many here in this crowd this day, we recognize, that understand it. The pieces fall into place. They get it. It's like, yeah, okay, the sound. The prophecies that we've been waiting on. Okay, it, 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 these men are telling us the truth. They look back over the final weeks. They know, and it's just like they know it's true. They know it's true. And they recognize that they have just given over their deliverer to the most humiliating and locker's death and torturous way that anyone could ever experience. What do we do? Where do we go from here? How in the world do we go forward from that information, from that truth? And of course we know what is about to be said. As we go on to verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. This is no small thing for them. Can you imagine they have been waiting 2,000 years since the days of Abraham? 1,000 years since the days of David. 700 years since the servant was prophesied by Isaiah. 400 since Malachi. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting to find out that he came and that they killed him. And so it says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Can you understand what a big question this is? They're they're not looking. uh, How do you get What do we do about this? And Peter said to them, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 precious souls realized on that day that everything as Jews they had been waiting for had come to pass. And it had come to pass in Jesus, who is their Lord and who is their Christ, who is the Son of David, who is the servant of God, who bore their sins on the cross. And so they repented. They were baptized and their sins were forgiven and they received the Holy Spirit because that was the promise of the new covenant. And they entered into faith. They entered by faith into that covenant that they'd been waiting for prophesied so long ago by Jeremiah. And the new community begins. They continue every day in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. They meet in each other's homes. That's the inspiration for life groups, to be quite honest. They meet in each other's homes and they share their food together. And they worship and the people are amazed and they find favor with God and with all the people. And as you know, the Lord adds to their number every day those who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and those who are obedient to the teachings of the apostles. And the words of that text echo down to us. In the original reading, we're the ones who are far off. To be technically correct, we're the Gentiles. We're the far off folk of Acts 2. But I think you can take it a little bit more personally today. The promise is for you. This eternal promise of God that he worked out over centuries through the most stubborn and hard-headed people. His boundless love, his grace never gives away. He starts out from the very beginning knowing where he will go. This promise of life, of forgiveness, of fellowship with God, of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, the promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for all who are far off. And I would say to those among us today, our friends, our family, our visitors, guests who might be here, who have not yet done what some of us have, which is confess our faith and repent and to be baptized, I'd like for you to imagine being in that moment, being in that scene, being in that crowd, seeing and hearing the things that happened that day, hearing the words of Peter as he explains Scripture and shows the fulfillment of it in Jesus And sensing in your own heart what all of us have had to come to grips with because none of us are free from guilt when it comes to the cause of the death of Jesus because he died for my sins. What can I do about that? He died because of my sins. But imagine yourself there and you're hearing these things and you're seeing these things and all else starts to fall into place. I'd like for you to imagine how you would respond. Had you been standing there that day listening to the message from Peter, how would you respond? 
Many of us here have already responded to that teaching. And if you're among us today believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you're convinced of that, you know who He is, you want to build your life on that reality, we would say to you nothing more and nothing less than what Peter said on that day. Repent. Change your heart and mind about who Jesus is and repent, turn away from sin. And be baptized in the name, in the authority, by the power of, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Peter said then to that group is still true today. You can have the forgiveness of sins. You can enter into new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God. You can receive the gift of God's Spirit so that you can be obedient to His will. If you receive the word gladly, as they did, and respond to it simply, as they did. And we would encourage anyone here today who has not yet made that commitment of life to do so today. For those of us who have made that commitment to Christ, who've made that decision, who've given that obedience, who are participating in the amazing blessings of the new covenant, may today we just look back over the sweep of Scripture and see the mighty, gracious, majestic, powerful hand of God. How much does He love you? That it unfolds His plan of redemption through the centuries. Let us be grateful. Let us live lives that reflect a commitment to Christ as Lord and realize that we have the greatest news to share with the world that needs to know about life and starting over and finding forgiveness and finding spiritual power to live right. And let's speak those words. Today, if you have not yet responded to Jesus Christ, We invite you to come to Him. Have you been to Jesus? Have you come to Him for cleansing? Have you confessed your faith? Have you turned from your sins? If not, may God stir your heart today. May the Spirit of God convict in your heart today, as He was so active on that day long ago, to bring you to Christ. Let's stand together and sing.